0: All right, we'll begin. Uh, Good afternoon, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. Thank you for coming to this, uh, the third live event of our new project, still new project, Art of Future Warfare. This afternoon, we will engage a distinguished panel in a discussion about how art and creativity can illuminate thinking about international security and armed conflict, using as impetus to that conversation the subject of this project's most recent, as I call it, War Art Challenge. Uh, Fighting the Final Frontier, Conflict in Space During the Late 21st Century. Welcome. Uh, I'm Steve Grundman. I'm the Lund Fellow for Emerging Defense Challenges at the Atlantic Council. Uh, The Council's uh, Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security, in fact, is my home, and so too is it the home of the Art of Future War project. Uh, You know, in Washington, we often discuss the challenges of international security Uh, using a shared mindset of generally accepted and admired, uh, but quite traditional, parameters. And yet, time and again, we are surprised at how rapidly developing global security events prove those parameters to be false or at least misaligned. And it's for this reason, among others, that we launched this project, Art of Future Warfare, uh, the purpose of which is to engage people with a different mindset, creative people, both working artists as well as those who regard their art as an avocation, in thinking about complex nonlinear futures that will unfold across this century and how those dynamics may shape and animate international security and, regrettably still, armed conflict. More specifically, it's the mission of this project to cultivate a community of interest in works and ideas arising from the intersection of creativity and expectations about emerging antagonists disruptive technologies, and novel warfighting fighting concepts. The project, as I've alluded to, is employing various forms of crowdsourcing to generate content. And today's event is, in fact, the capstone of what, as I say, we call a war art challenge. Uh, this most recent one is the second, and the chal- a challenge that we issued in the mid-winter. Uh, using a series of artistic prompts, uh, prompts that included uh, no less than the Carter Doctrine, uh, if you can harken back to the 1970s, the Carter, Do- Carter Doctrine uh, recognizing the uh, international security significance of resources in the Middle East, as a for example, as well as uh, as another prompt we used was uh, advice to writers from our panelist David Brin. Uh, using these prompts, we chal- uh, we issued a challenge and Uh, to elicit short stories about conflict in space at the very end of the 21st century. In response, we received more than two dozen stories, and the overall quality of the submissions exceeded our expectations of what this experiment in trying to change thinking about the future of warfare could accomplish. Today, to help us engage these topics and reflect on the contest's submissions, we're pleased to have assembled this distinguished and, and thoughtful panel. Uh, which includes, although uh, the, the moderator, August Cole, may introduce them in greater detail, uh, I'll just say briefly, David Brin, who is a scientist, author, and tech fu- futurist, widely published, uh, but I don't mind mentioning his story, The Avalon Missions. He graciously allowed us to republish on the artoffuturewarfare.com website last week, uh, which unto itself is, is worth a read uh, uh, in the general context of what we're here to discuss today. Jason Batt. Uh, is the creative and editorial director of the 100 year Starship project. James Gates is communications director at Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. And not least, Alec Medien, who is a sophomore at Chapman University in Orange, California, and whose story, From a Remove, we judged the most distinguished of all the, the entries we received. Uh, David Brin, who in fact evaluated the finalists in the contest, uh, wrote of Alec's story, quote, The action is propulsive throughout and very vivid, and the thought experiments about future warfare were aimed at plausibly surprising aspects of possible near future. Permit me to uh, make a a, a plug uh, for several things going on in this project uh, this spring. It's gonna be a very busy spring and summer for the Art of Future Warfare project. We recently launched the next War Art Challenge Uh, creative challenge, this one calling for graphic artists and illustrators to explore megacity urban warfare in the 2040s and 2050s. On June 23rd, right here, we will host an event like this one, uh, but which will feature Max Brooks, uh, the author of World War Z, among other uh, novels and and, uh, artistic accomplishments. And we at that conversation will explore the power of how visual media can help us better understand the future of warfare and how to prepare for it and, God willing, avoid it. Uh, Guiding today's conversation, the one person on stage I did not yet mention uh, is August Cole. August is the director of the Art of Future War, Warfare Project. August is a writer, analyst, and consultant who specializes in national security issues. He's the former defense industry reporter for the Wall Street Journal and MarketWatch.com. Among other of his accomplishments, August is author of the forthcoming in June 2015 novel Ghost Fleet, written with Peter Singer, and which is appropriately enough subtitled, uh, or at least uh, being promoted as, quote, a novel of the next, great, of the next world war. Uh, several of us who have read it highly commend it to your attention. Uh, indeed, we will be having an event here, although not, not exactly launching the book, but featuring both August and Peter on the 7th of June. On the 7th of June, if you want to put that... 7th of July. Thank you very much. 7th of July. 23rd of June uh, with Max Brooks on urban warfare. 7th July uh, with August Cole and Peter Singer on the next uh, Great War. Uh, Finally, uh, I I hope uh, this conversation, which August is going to moderate, uh, will demonstrate how the Council is committed to bringing new voices and perspectives to the national security conversation and to exploring new ways of working from well outside our, uh, I I consider uh, myself among them uh, sort of left brain uh, linear thinkers, uh, bring new ways of working from well outside our usual practices. Uh, You will hear perspectives today I doubt you'll find anywhere else in Washington uh, and that show off subject matter expertise with entirely new frames of thinking and points of view. These panelists care deeply about the issues they write about a passion paired with deep knowledge, and I look forward to their conversation as I'm sure the rest of the audience does. August, I turn it over to you. Thank you all for coming.
1: Thank you, Steve, for the excellent introduction. As Steve said, I'm August Cole uh, from the Atlantic Council. We will be live tweeting this event. In fact, we already are live tweeting this event, and one of the most important tweets that you can look up if you're in the audience online is uh, Alex's story, which we have sent a link to so that that will be familiar in the course of our conversation. Uh, we'll be tweeting from the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center, which is at A.C. Scowcroft as uh, one word, and we'll have a hashtag for this event and for future Art of Future Warfare events at hashtag A.C. War. So as Steve alluded, you know, what are we learning about the future of warfare from these creative exercises? Well, we are fundamentally using a different approach, a different part of our brain, and the hope is that that will give us new insight, and in doing so also validate and improve the participation and role that artists and the creative community can have in the larger national security conversation. That's really something that affects all of us. In our latest challenge, which Alec has won, and that is an accomplishment for a 20-year-old that I think all of us can salute, uh, and we thank him for journeying from California uh, during finals week, uh, which is maybe the best excuse ever to get out of uh, an exam. What we were really looking to do was to think about the far future. When we held our Great War Challenge event, Uh, Earlier in the spring, one of the points that was made in the audience is, are you looking far enough into the future? And this contest has allowed us to do that, not only to think about the end of our century that we're in now, but also to think about today in a more uh, freed way, that we can think about the technologies and trends that are ultimately familiar, particularly as we saw in stories like Alex, but talk about them in a way that is not constrained by some of the boundaries and limits that we often set on our exploration of these issues. Many of the themes will be familiar. Every single of our uh, finalists in our, our, our contest, four stories, had female protagonists, warriors, uh, essentially as the central character in their, in their piece, in the story. We had new actors, like sovereign states, wielding power that we haven't seen yet. A unified Africa is one. Another, in Alex's case, is a group of internet connected individuals with state like power. We also can talk about even bigger themes, almost more existential ones that one of our stories in particular picked up, really mankind's role in the universe. And these are topics that are often difficult to talk about in a constrained way uh, as often the exigencies of our day demand. I I think it's also important to acknowledge because we are also talking about technology here. We are talking about the future of warfare that the 20th century, the U.S. spent a lot of that uh, period driving the future of warfare. 21st, we may have to face the fact that we <coughs> don't get to decide what the future of warfare is. But That is being decided for us by other actors, and it's something to explore. With that, Steve gave a great setup to the panelists, and I think I will launch into our discussion by having Alec talk a bit about his main character and his story. <coughs> and if you can introduce us to Danya Al Shirazi from, from a Remove.
2: Okay. Well, so the main character in my story is a college student at Stanford University, and um, she's also an Iranian immigrant from a a, uh, not quite a world war, but a, a regional water war that involves nuclear weapons between Pakistan, India, Iran, and an empowered Kazakhstan. Um, she came to the us and to kind of escape the horrors that she 'd seen as a child, she dived into the major league gaming community, which at this, by this point in the future has become probably on par with the sports we all enjoy today, like football and soccer. Um, in the major league gaming community, she essentially learns all the, all the modes and types of warfare that are at the cutting edge of her time period, because these are, in, es- in essence, war simulators. Um, she comes out of the major league gaming community with, um, essentially, a training for modern space warfare. Um, and she gets an offer that she can't refuse from states known as sovereignities or sovereigns, which are not not located anywhere on Earth. They're, in fact, distributed over the entire globe. They are internet nations with their own GDPs, their own military arms, and their own industrial complexes built through distributive manufacturing. Um, She is hired into the military arm of these, known as scalpel, which can maybe tell you a bit about their modus operandi, um, and hired to fly a space interceptor, a type of drone controlled by remote, in Earth orbit, not capable of atmospheric flight, but perfect for orbital engagements. Um, She thinks that she will never be called into action and is somewhat headstrong. She kind of thinks she understands what war is about from her experience. Um, This all changes when a space probe known as the Zheng He, uh, named after the famed explorer, uh, takes a U-turn. It was supposed to be going into interstellar space, powered by the, uh, the and version of the EM drive that's being developed today. Instead, it takes a U-turn and starts moving at 0.7 light speed toward the city of Lagos, Nigeria, which is now in, at this point in the future, the most powerful nation on Earth, the African Confederation, a North African unified state built out of the needs of the current struggles of Africa and the massive need for innovation. Um, Lagos is entirely destroyed. It's utterly evaporated by the strike of several tons of spaceship going at 0.7 light speed. And this ignites a global conflict since nobody knows who did it. Nobody knows who hacked this spacecraft. And she is essentially called into action to protect uh, sovereignty infrastructure in space, foremost amongst which are massive reflectors built to attempt to reverse global warming which were all built by her father. Um, and from there, things get really ugly.
1: <laughs> it's a fine story for the character development, something that you, David, have talked about extensively and how we think about the future. But particularly with the future of warfare, there is that tension between technology and the tension between the individual and the human actor. Maybe you could walk us through some of the ways you approach
3: those challenges. Well, we um we are creatures who live suspended to some degree outside of time. Uh, The organs that we have that other creatures don't have on on this planet are called the prefrontal lobes, these little nubs above the eyes. And these are what we use to do what Einstein called the Gedanken experiment, the thought experiment. What might happen if I raise this proposal at a meeting? What might happen if I wear this today? What might happen if I try to run this yellow light? And we're constantly doing um, thought experiments about possible consequences of our actions. Now, we're not very good at it, but we do it anyway, because it can eliminate the worst and most blatant mistakes. Human beings are, in essence, delusional anyway. And so we have to have a layering of methods of dealing with these things. And one method of dealing with our delusions is called criticism, and that's why you are well advised to get married. Um, But the notion of a reciprocal critical society that explores possible outcomes through, for example, fiction that takes it a little farther than normal for this town. This town is very, very much engaged, however, in using the prefrontal lobes and prosthetic tools like analytics engines information gathering, the things that are all in the news, using these prosthetic tools to empower our prefrontal lobes to do what the professional protector cast in this town want to do, and that is anticipate. Anticipate where the next threat is going to be. Uh, and, a lot, and there's about a dozen of the, what were called hard science fiction authors who are invited back here to this town once a year or so to run thought experiments about possible threat modes, possible ways in which the stylish threat of the moment, which was super empowered angry young men. Now it's gone back to nation states because we're talking about China and Russia and possible alliances between the two. The working out of this process of anticipation merges into science fiction. And this is why I compliment the Atlantic Council for pointing out that beyond the five-year projection, which you can do with these analytic tools, then you're starting to tell stories. And the stories aren't meant to be predictive. They're meant to jar you into noticing that there are trends that are vividly plausible. And this is one of the things that impressed me most about Alex's story, is this notion of saying, let's extrapolate, let's extrapolate. There were several other contenders for the uh, first place. And a couple of them were very artistic about future of war 1,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now, interstellar. And while I was impressed with them, It didn't seem to me that they were as useful, a thought experiment, a projection through the prefrontal lobes, as Alex's story, which, by the way, also was very nicely written. So I could have sabotaged this young rival. Um, <laughs> but I am great confidence that uh, I'll be able to stay ahead of him because of bad dentistry when I was a kid. You see, we, we, we in my clade, we, we pick up alien radio stations, <laughs> yeah. whereas you have all this clean, these clean teeth. JASON you know, you as uh,
1: someone involved in the 100-Year Starship, which is a DARPA-funded, uh, among other sources of, of, uh, of, of, of support, uh, exploration of the interstellar uh, space travel technologies so that we can really develop this within the next hundred years, but you know you also helped judge these stories. you read through the entirety, you helped select the finalists. What really surprised you either at a technological or at a you know, a to b uh, trend line that you might might want to point yeah. out for the
4: audience I think the one thing that I liked specifically about alec 's story in, is, is like david said it 's not predictive but it 's noticing the trend, and you hit on two aspects that are this gaming society right now that continues to grow and continues to develop, and then these internet nations uh, where they begin to move past national boundaries, they begin to have their own initiatives, they begin to have their own strategies. Uh, we see this you know, even today with you know, the group Anonymous um, that a lot of people look at, but if you begin to extrapolate that trend out 10, 20, 30 years, and you begin to get into internet currency and having them having their own ability and capability to purchase and to buy, and then they begin to have their own desires and their own aims. This is something that becomes, one, very hard to predict. Uh, I think the one thing I liked about what you did, though, is you had this young woman at Stanford in the United States, and yet she had double loyalties. She considered herself a citizen of two different nations here a nation without tangible borders, without you know, a tangible location, no embassy, no place that they can actually go to. And yet they were highly organized, they were highly focused, and they were affecting the ultimate course of life on Earth. So is there
1: a way to think about the evolution of space uh, access? Currently, we talk about it uh, with the context US and Russia, or what is China doing? Are we getting engines from Russia or not? But is there, does there need to be space made for the highly engineered Highly capable non state actor that may have launch capability, yes uh, you know is that something you see you know, yeah. you know Jane with drones I mean your work with the Syria Airlift project I think is an example of how uh, non state actors can use in your case for good uh, technologies that are really burgeoning that our own government is still figuring out themselves how to use. Maybe you can kind of articulate that in the context
3: for
5: so one of the projects that uh, August is actually mentioning here is is called the Syria Airlift project, and we 're using non-lethal drones to develop a way to bring aid to besieged cities, to help end the use of starvation and uh, civilian deprivation as weapons of war, and essentially taking away one of the big old tools of warfare that also has a huge emotional and psychological impact. And you know, one of the things that I'm really liking about working with this project is I'm a science fiction editor. And I recently did a project called War Stories, which is a fu- uh, near-future science fiction and one of the huge thing, uh, huge questions in there <coughs> was what will drones be doing, what will AIs be doing? And several of my authors actually came up with uh, some really interesting questions about what if AI doesn't do what we think it does? What if we don't have killer robots? Um, one of our stories was from Richard Dansky, who said, well, what if AI comes in and goes, war is idiotic and I'm not going to do this, I'm a pacifist, uh, good luck figuring out how to make me be a, an aggressive player. And so we're starting to run into all of these things that we have extrapolated for a long time, seeing more uses for them and seeing you know, possibilities for peace and for you know, beneficial results from it.
1: And is, is, is that something that in the space context, because there is less of a legal framework and more possibility to push past initial technological hurdle that you might see that envelope being expanded.
5: I think we'll see it being expanded a lot also because when you have that unregulated space there's more room for people to uh, people to experiment to fail to try you know, to fail again and to just keep going until they find something that works or until they decide that this is not a feasible direction. And so when you have that freedom, I think you'll see more people who maybe get into it as a hobby. And, you know, instead of bottle rockets, we're, we're doing drones now. You can you can go to Walmart and buy a, a drone, a, a mini drone. We've had those for several years. Now people are starting to build their own. And so it's, it's moving from something that can be controlled to a very open market thing. Um, there was a, a actually a major fire in my hometown last year, and uh, air support had to be shut down for an entire day because someone decided to film the fires using his personal camera drone and made the entire area unsafe for the fire crews. And so, but there's no regulation on that. You know, you can't actually punish that. It's it finally came down to the sheriff saying, "You get that out of the sky, or I'm shooting it down myself." But these are the questions that we're going to have to start exploring, is it's becoming available to everyone, what are we going to do? And then once we get out into space, that problem is, and that question is just going to explode in magnitude. So I
1: won't go to Alec and David, but you know, the, our human understanding of what war is today is informed by a variety of sources. You know, your uh, heroine is working from a messy dorm room in Stanford controlling a decisive piece of technology in space, but yet at this great distance, and it's only when that war really comes home to her that she actually understands that she's been a gamer her whole life and she's played simulated warfare. So maybe you can talk about how you're looking at that, that simulated conflict catching up to the reality of conflict in the 21st century.
2: Well, I think uh, the story kind of speaks to itself in that, in that essence. Um, definitely simulated conflict is becoming very, very similar in how it depicts the ways and means of war um, to actual war. But at the same time, you never get the actual feeling of war. You can't, or at least I think you can't, simulate the emotions that go through someone's head, the the desperation of a conflict zone. But you can know how to fight a war just from some kind of, maybe not video games now, but in, in the future as virtual reality intensifies. What's the difference between operating a video game that has controls exactly like a Predator drone and flying a Predator drone? Well, the difference is, people are dying. And I think that a lot of people tend to think that drones trivialize warfare for, for the operators. There's a That's the biggest criticism, I think, right now of drones, um, other than how they're being used, is that, oh, wars will become cheap and easy. And powers won't care about civilian casualties, because they won't be able to see them. And I don't think that's the case, because I think that especially if you look at the numbers regarding PTSD among, among drone operators, it, it still hits home. As long as you can see what's happening, your brain can extrapolate and understand what you are doing. And the guilt, all the emotion, all the feeling, especially as sensors become more and more powerful and you can see more and more of what you're doing, it, it will hit home. So I, I, I don't really oppose drones. I oppose how they might be used, and I fear Uh, You know, I I fear that they'll be used incorrectly, or even that they are being used incorrectly. But I don't fear that there's some new game changer in conflict in terms of how people think about it. I just worry that they're another destructive tool a la flamethrower or some other weapon that we tended to hate at the beginning of its use.
3: Yeah, I think it's very important that we recognize that uh, reflexive cliches can often be both true and untrue. One is this notion that the drone operators are detached, and therefore it makes it easier to kill. In fact, um, as Alex said, all the studies have indicated that the drone operators become more engaged in the process of wanting to vet their targets more carefully than when you are a pilot of a plane That you're constantly worried about your own survival and having to juggle all of the... Parameters of getting yourself alive in and out and dwelling over the target for as little time as you possibly can. The drones appear to uh, um, allow much longer dwell times and decision times. Now this may change, but uh, I recommend a um, a uh, a movie that came out not too long ago from Mexico called Sleep Dealer, which is. Um, from a very liberal, even leftist perspective, uh, guilt-tripping about the drones. And yet it portrays the American Hispanic American drone operator doing exactly this, feeling guilty about a a Mexican farmer who he was ordered to destroy. Um, You see this portrayed in a film that I don't particularly care for called Ender's Game. Um, You see this. In the fact that, um, in in that movie, they are able to get the drone operator or general, Ender, to destroy this world by fooling him into thinking that it's just a game or just an exercise. So does this mean that right now what it's doing is it's part of the trend of the last 50 years of making armed engagements from the point of view of Americans and the West more and more like police SWAT teams. The ratio of civilian casualties that are acceptable in World War II to military casualties was maybe 20 to 1. To us today, this would be considered monstrous. And this was the good guys. That ratio of acceptable civilian casualties as a ratio to Uh, military deaths on the other side has been steadily declining. Today we wring our hands when drone strikes kill maybe one civilian per two targets. If this continues, if this trend continues, then you wind up becoming more and more like police. Is, is
1: is there a paradox that we're approaching where uh, the centers of gravity in the urban context, and I say this not as a way to plug our latest creative challenge, which I am doing, um, <laughs> but as as, Megas, as more and more of the world's population lives in urban areas, we have a profound intimacy that will be inevitable in certain conflicts. Yet, if we walk off, if we head out of you know orbit, so to speak, into space, you have what I don't really know will be a detachment, you know, in kind of your Detachment Unders-
3: by time delay as well. So there's
1: the physical uh, separation that comes from hull, which is more like maybe undersea warfare, but yet also, as you say, the time detachment. So how do you reconcile that? How does our, how does America, you know, as a as a nation that is committed to having a strong military, prepare for both? Anyone want to jump in on that? Well,
4: I think I mean, it's a completely different way of thinking about conflict. Uh, I know the. The natural approach, and you see it in Star Trek, is the, you know, making it like naval warfare. And there's this idea that what's going to happen in space is a lot like what we experience in undersea and submarines. But he's right on the time delay. We're not talking just distances of a few miles. You know, if the conflict extends, say, 30, 40 years from now, and we have Mars colonies, and we are dealing with you know, possible conflicts across the solar system, we don't understand really, truly how far away Mars is. Um, we don't even really understand truly how far away the moon is. So you've got these vast, vast gulfs. And uh, you, there is going to be that separation between here and there. I think it takes an entirely different types of strategy. It takes entirely different types of you know, weapon is, system. And
1: Is there a hope that conflict could be too impractical you know, in an outworld sense that it maybe becomes irrelevant?
4: Well, and I think it currently is right now. I think that's one of the benefits of space for us. We haven't seen true conflict happen in space because it is a bit impractical. Sure. It's very difficult to get there. And I think we're considering this because we're slowly seeing that border eroded. We're seeing, you know, like you said, non-nationals, we're seeing college groups that have got their eyes on suborbital and ultimately in the next five to ten years doing orbital launches. You know, we have smaller and smaller states wanting to get into the space race, and so we're seeing that erode. But for right now, it is impractical.
3: Except that the the Chinese ASAT, um, that um, was a demonstration to us that they were capable of attacking our our national reconnaissance resources, Mm -hmm. Um, also scattered into low Earth orbit probably about 20% of the debris that's out there yeah. from this one, very aggressive. And one could think of it as war, as a, yeah. as, as a type of war in space.
4: But isn't that the possibility of the Kistler syndrome? The fact that you know, anything that happens up there, orbital space is becoming very, very crowded. And it would not take too much to actually create a, quite a lot of debris that would affect us here.
1: James, you know, one of the things that you've been working on is crisis communications, and in the mm-hmm. space context, and it, and it seems like national narratives around uh, our own sense of defense and strength and, nat- and national security are very, very uh, amorphous here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that going when you go to space?
5: There are actually several things that I see happening. One of them is, you know, like you mentioned with the A set, it's it's a question of scale and and numbers. For the first, however, many years where we're just getting off of Earth and it's not becoming common, it's still very expensive. It's still very risky in terms of property and and life. One single event, even a small event, could throw the entire, you know, the entire mission, so to say, completely off. You know, you you look at the damage that was done to the optimism after things like the Challenger. But now you even have you know, something like a a SpaceX failure or whatever, and and people start getting that nervousness again of, of, well, what happens when you put people in this? And so one small event could throw off an entire planning stage. You could suddenly run into a lot of, people saying, well, wait a minute, let's let's think about this again. Is this worth the risk? So one of the things that we need to consider is building the acceptable failure narrative into that where it's not going to be cheap to get off world. There will be a loss of, uh, probably a lot of <coughs> loss of property. There will be loss of life. Um, and that's something that we have to understand and accept. And, and any small thing, any small terrorist attack, we'll say, could have far-reaching implications, but if we're prepared for that, and we can have that in mind; it will help. The other thing is that with the the social aspect, I think we'll actually have more attention on any space conflicts, and there will be a, a much greater narrative around it. I, you look at the conflicts in, like, the Arab Spring, where people around the world are using social media to watch this because it, there's a voyeuristic tendency as well. Well, it's not affecting me, but I can go, I can view this conflict out here and see how rebellion and and uprising Mm -hmm. and war work, but I don't have to be affected by it. You add the mysterious element of space and, and the exciting newness of it. And in a lot of senses, it may end up being like the biggest reality show. And we may even end up with reality shows helping push the visibility of space projects, but that also means that anything that happens may come under significantly greater scrutiny and discovery than otherwise it would if it was less socially interesting this,
1: this notion of, of risk and narrative is also tied to reward and you know mm-hmm. in, in the contest, one of the creative cues we had was this recognition that the us. has energy interests that have strategic uh, value to them and and you know david you 've looked a bit at uh, mining asteroids we talked about this last night that. You know, there is clearly the tendency to, in the future, potentially replicate many of the same struggles for uh, ore for, for other uh, resources off world. In fact, our first creative challenge contest linked to this very notion of mining <coughs> Helium-3 on the moon. So tell me, tell me a bit about if that's probable and something that people should be worried about today, or is that still out
3: in the, in the, in the deep yonder? Well, I think it's delightful how Helium-3 suddenly leaped into the narratives. Um, uh, all the way to this, this charming, insane movie, Iron Sky, that came out about Nazis on the moon, and <laughs> Helium 3. Uh, helium 3 is, of course, entirely hypothetical, because we have to develop fusion power first. Um, so uh, that's the only resource that the moon has. Uh, those politicians who wanted us to go back to the moon basically wanted us to do nothing. And fortunately, we shifted over our emphasis to something that I have long believed, since I was pretty much Alex's age, was the key to making the solar system akin to the American frontier. And that's the resources of asteroids. (laughs) Um, uh, Back in the 1980s, I worked with with the fellow who was um, John Lewis, who wrote a book called Mining the Sky back in the 1980s. Who was the guru of looking at what you would get if you were to just disassemble one one-kilometer asteroid of the right kind? You would have the entire world's steel production and uh, iron production for a year, the entire world's gold and silver production for a 100 years and a thousand wor- years worth of platinum group elements. Uh, naturally, the prices would crash, but you'd be able to have gold, your gold-plated eye watch real cheap. <laughs> the, um, the point being that in the last three years, some of the Silicon Valley billionaires have thought it worth seven figures, out-of-pocket change, investments in this new frontier. And they're correlating with what the Obama administration has made. Asteroids also our intermediate step to Mars. So there's a synergy going on there. Um, and then the question is, How lawfully can we go and get these materials? Most of the space scholars uh, who have looked at the Space Treaty realize that over time, the Space Treaty is going to have to be amended and adjusted. Um, uh, But right now, most interpretations say, you can go ahead and grab an asteroid, shift it into lunar orbit, start getting the resources. You just can't own it. But you can take things from it which means that someone else can come to that same asteroid after you've taken your first cut and just go ahead and mine it for themselves. Over time, obviously, there will have to be adjustments. And in a peaceful world, uh, in a world that wants goodwill out of this. I just want to riff on one aspect of this, and that is space law saved all of humanity probably in that because the sputnik happened first from the soviets and there is a 30 i give 30% odds that eisenhower deliberately slowed us down so that this would happen because if we had launched first there might have been world objections to us violating airspace but because the soviets went first there was the establishment of the precedent that Sovereignty, national sovereignty, stops with the atmosphere. And therefore, Eisenhower got what he desperately wanted. That's why we have the U-2 thing. And that was the ability to ha- have spy satellites on both sides save the world through something called transparency. So transparency saved the world. That's a little bit of a riff off um, my nonfiction book, The Transparent Society. but. It's, it's the notion that we have dodged mines or bullets in this progress into space through goodwill and, and sometimes historical accidents.
1: I mean, so, Alec, where would the sovereignties, to put you on the spot, fall on the side of that argument? Is that the kind of opinion they would believe that they had rights to
2: own and mine an asteroid, or is that something that would be uh, more of a nation state
5: Man,
1: domain?
2: That, that's extrapolating a little far, but I'd say. Um... I mean, what I imagine is that if there is some kind of new treaty that gets formed, I imagine that ownership of the asteroid would come from moving it into Earth orbit, because it sounds like that's not too easy. Um, and I don't think the sovereigns, and grant, granted, I say multiple, that, You know, there's a plural there, so some of them might, not, might be nicer than others. Um, but you recall
3: but, uh, I recommended in a future draft of your story that you have them making their space materials and yeah. things like that because otherwise the nation states that are physical would clamp down on them. I mean no, be, what, what I mean
2: is I, what I mean is they would grab their own yeah is not is that they wouldn't steal china's or america's because they don't like getting crushed by china or america in their infancy but once they grab their own and they get an asteroid that is worth the entire gdp of great britain then they then it's, you know, they're, they're suddenly a major power.
1: Jason, I want to ext- extrapolate this a bit and say, you know, if, is there advantage to take out what David was saying to the U.S. letting a non-state group go first? Uh, to have that threshold be set by a power that may not be assumed to be as dominant in the long run in space. And, and that may be true in the interstellar context mm-hmm. as well. If a consortium of uh, Pacific Rim nations develop a, you know, long-range spaceflight vehicle, is that to our advantage if we let that happen first or does America need to be
4: first in that race? To be honest, I don't know if we can be first at this point. I think that a lot of major space initiatives are gonna to have to continue being what we see in the last you know, several decades with the ISS where they are working together. And I think that's been the beauty of space so far. You know, The Outer Space Treaty really established it as this is all of ours. And so there is this collective, okay, we can put aside our differences, and we can all get involved, and we can all participate. Um, but we're seeing this already with what's happening, you know, with the Mars One initiative. You know, we've got these people that are really trying to explore and get into the idea of what could happen if we send a group of people to Mars, and we're actually having people willing to sign up their lives right. to say, "Hey, we're going to go and do," you know, what James says. There's going to be acceptable risk, and we're not going to come back. And you know it is a way for us to begin to explore what's out there. I think that whether or not we want it, it's going to happen. I think that there are gonna be more than just the three major powers, you know, China, Russia, America that is involved in space and these large initiatives. Uh, just like we said, you know, there's uh, the United Arab Emirates just released a video about their Mars mission. And they're very interested and they've got a very unique perspective on doing climate analysis of Mars to affect you know, how they deal with climate here on Earth. Um, and I think that's good. I, for all of us, the more and more people that can get involved, and this is coming from the peace approach, not from the war <laughs> approach. It's only beneficial to all of us because we get different perspectives. We get different even approaches to the technology, how it's built, how the missions are done. You know, Elon Musk is approaching space in such a radically different way. Um, He is building upon the ideas and the foundation that was laid by NASA and Apollo. And yet at the same time, he's bringing in the Silicon Valley mentality. And it's wonderful because it's supercharged so much of what's happening in the world. This whole asteroid mining, planetary resources, deep deep space industries. So many of these are benefiting from Musk's completely outside the line new way of thinking. James?
5: I I I wanted to bring up two things, actually. So there is a piece written recently, and I can't remember the author, um, but about the, the energy crisis that's going on and how some nations that did not ever get the coal infrastructure or the oil infrastructure are actually starting to leap ahead of nations that are technologically advanced to them because they don't have to try and, and update existing infrastructure. They're just going ahead and jumping ahead and building a future. And I think that we're seeing that with with space as well. You know, India on their first try had a successful launch. They, they haven't been doing this for, you know, 50 years of, of failure and trial and error. They don't have quite so much of the, well, this is how we do it. And so I think that people like Musk actually have a huge advantage here, because they are bringing that uh, sort of rebel mentality to it of, we're just going to bane on this thing with sticks until something works. And maybe it won't work, but maybe we'll find out some new things in the meantime, and that's kind of awesome.
2: Yes. Like just a film student aside, I, I, I believe that the Indian probe cost less than the filming of the movie Gravity. So that kind of puts in perspective. they, they <laughs> They sent something into space for less than we put in Hollywood. so.
4: One of the, one of the things that Jane had brought up is just recently there's an article out about a uh, small community college on a Native American reservation. And they had decided to start a space club. And they got excited. And they were starting to come up with ways to actually launch. And NASA heard about it and they got them involved in different contests. And here they are, they're competing against. You know Harvard and a lot of these Ivy League schools that have got you know triple you know or six uh, figure uh, budgets for these clubs, and they're coming in with a five thousand ten thousand dollar budget and achieving what some of the larger schools were. So this limitation of resources actually spurred creative angles of thought.
3: And and there is an infrastructure for this exact thing. It's called CubeSat, and um, CubeSats are this lovely notion that there's these spring loaded boxes that can go alongside the big expensive cargos. And they're popped off in the fairings that pop off. And as soon as the gold, the, the, the big expensive mission is on its way, then the signal goes to these boxes that were in the fairings. And they, they just burn a little, spring, a little latch and out from a spring pop out these university um, or higher than university. Sometimes they're they're 1U, or they're about this size. A 6U is a great big one, 9U, and they're going to be doing solar sail missions with this. And these are things that are now are part of the assumed infrastructure of even national defense launches. They stick some of these CubeSat missions on as a way that that cheap things can hitch a ride. I want to point out, I want to talk about some of the reasons for space war. And the obvious one uh, that concerns people in this, uh, possibly in this room, but certainly in this town is, and this was typified by the Chinese ASAT um, stunt, was the potential for um, degrading national resources. Because it is assumed that in a major conflict in the future, um, that uh, the degradation of the computational and informational resources of the United States is the first step towards equalizing the playing field. Because then you can make it about numbers, for example. And of course, the Chinese PLA and the Russian army are larger in physical numbers. The degradation of our eyes and our ability to communicate is one of the um, delicate areas that are first considered today in the concepts of space war. And the uh, Air Force is about to launch its X-37 again. And there's no doubt whatsoever that it's involved in those kinds of analyses. But there are other things out there. We mentioned resources. Uh, asteroidal resources, conceivably lunar resources, um, access to geo. But there's one more, and that's geoengineering. And that is, if we find ourselves uh, having, with our backs against the wall, regarding global climate change, then we're going to have to do some things that are not currently politically incorrect and possibly alter, perhaps, the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth with giant umbrella shades or things like that. Well, the as Alec hinted at in his story, these things might benefit the world as a whole, but might less benefit some particular countries, in which case you would have a conflict of interest over these, these space measures. Solar power satellites are another area in which Perhaps eighty percent of the world is benefiting, but the oil nations aren't.
1: Is is the decisive technology of space warfare in the future the simplest saying lasers, or are there other means and, and orders of battle we should be considering? I'll let Alec open this, but I'd love to hear what the rest
2: of the panel says. Um, big fan of that, but uh, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I definitely say I mean yes. By, by the way, Ener- his Twitter handle is assorted lasers. <laughs> 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 You know, energy weapons in general are certainly a possibility. I think the, the coming to the fore is lasers because microwave is so short range and plasma makes no sense. But um, laser weapons—they are—they can certainly be useful. But as you know, as we learned with ICBMs, it's it, with current laser technology, it's pretty much impossible to burn through an ICBM. So your your awesome missile satellites that you see in fiction so much—you know, anti-missile laser satellites—they won't work. And what I think we see is that's interesting is kinetic impactors. Mm-hmm. I mean, speed is such a factor in space. In in my story, there's these drones that are nothing more than the the kind of, well, we don't know if it exists or is true or not, but they have the EM drive, which is kind of like reactionless propulsion, and nothing else. They're a solar panel and an engine. And their job is just to drive themselves into something at 34,000 miles per hour. Or there's also rail guns. And, the interesting thing with railguns is, even with the immense speed that they can lob, uh, say, a ne- neodymium payload, there's still the distances with which you're fighting, make it so even with pinpoint accuracy, you might get it wrong. If you're, you know, if we're talking more extrapolatory, far out, maybe you're fighting from a couple light seconds apart. When when you see the enemy, you're seeing where they were in the past. So in my story, the one way, way that they solve that is they don't fire a solid slug. They fire what they call buckshot. Um, kind of ironic that they use buckshot for long engagements, but um, it's these these kind of micro munitions that spread out and are guided somehow. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll figure that out, I hope, but uh, Author's that, are, <laughs> that are guided and basically saturate the area where you kind of think the enemy ship is going to be. And since they're moving at Mach 7 in addition to whatever orbital speed your craft was moving at, they really just ruin their entire day. And um, Weapons like that that are kind of, we wouldn't, or also magnetohydrodynamic weapons, which fire jets of molten liquid at quite possibly relativistic speeds uh, could also be a possibility. There's any number of, of systems that we could imagine that don't necessarily involve the cliched lasers and pew-pew type things you might see in your sci-fi movies, so Star Pew So pew-pew
3: has its
5: place.
2: Oh, it yes. always.
5: So, uh, I actually really like um, you know what you're suggesting there because in a way we're looking at extremely technologically advanced bricks. I mean one of the mm-hmm. things they I uh, for the paper that I presented last year at 100-year starship that I was talking about is when you get out in space the tiniest error can mean that you are completely and totally done. There there is no well I'm Going to drift on the sea and hope that a ship happens across me, I, you know. You can't live off the land. How many people did we lose to the Oregon Trail, where they were surrounded by resources? You get out in space, you don't have those, you know. At least until we start getting to other planets. And so, it, essentially, throwing a brick through the the front windshield of your spaceship is going to cause catastrophic damage. And so, you don't necessarily need to get into the really resource expensive things like the laser guns. You have something that can be guided and that has the destructive penetrating force to get into a spaceship and you could, that could be the end of it right there. But the other thing is that I think that one of the mistakes we make is to think that because it's space we need to go bigger. We need to have these huge massive awesome arrays. But it's, I think it's going to be the small things. I think technological weapons Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or the the more invisible things you know being able to hack into a a drive and get rid of the climate control just you know cook the people on board things like that i think we're going to see more cyber sorts of warfare and at least in early stages because they're much easier to get past unnoticed it could look like just a failure of a ship's engines and especially when they're young and vulnerable i think we'll have a huge Burst of people looking at the weaknesses, and uh, is similar to the early internet. But the other thing is that when you look at a lot of the early explorations on Earth, the driving force was often criminal enterprise. And I, I say this is the great granddaughter of a bootlegger. Um, you know, my family—that was—that was how they got started in America, and some uh, family lore. When you have that drive to get ahead of the thing that's pursuing you, you don't have any worries about ethics or, you know, making sure that you're playing nice with everyone else. You can achieve huge bursts of uh, creativity and and uh, development. And so I think that we're likely to see a lot of uh, criminal interests in space first, and have to figure out how we deal with those. You know what the policing system is going to be. You're talking about the the asteroid binding. Well, how long until we essentially see pirate ships and privateers that are just touching onto asteroids, snatching what they can, taking it over, and and having that sort of thing. And with the narratives that we tend to build for ourselves, we could even end up with sort of a Robin Hood story where, oh, well, it's these huge multinational corporations have these, these asteroids. And there are these brave few who are going in and, and snatching Resources for the few, and so that's the kind of stuff that we're going to need to consider as the, well. Is, the,
1: the Han Solo effect.
5: Exactly. Yeah. You know what happens yeah. when yeah. when the Silk Road, <laughs> uh, the Silk Road goes. Oh, hey, here's space. We can go out into this, and we can yes. we can have this, the dark web. So we're starting to see, I think, the initial burst of open source, open sourcing space, and with that comes. The same, kind of the same challenges that we had with the internet in the early days of it's not just the white hats who are going to be out there.
1: I want to shift uh, from technology to, to leadership, particularly combat leadership in space. You know, the, the four finalists, as I mentioned before, uh, featured female protagonists, heroes, heroines. And uh, you know, Jason, and, and is this is something that in your, your reading of the stories, talk about the significance of that and, and how you relate that, again, to the, the notion of leadership in the interstellar context as you're looking at space flight.
4: Well, I think specifically going with Alex's story, um, part of what we saw there was someone who initially, she's receiving a lot of her leadership, a lot of her commands in a distance type environment. And she is getting the information um, secondhand through the internet, through the web, you know, maybe not even connected with the individual out there. And so I think that's one of the interesting ideas is the possibility of... You know distributed leadership and she wasn't even 100 percent positive if i remember right what the ultimate aims of this organization was and i think that's one of the things that you're going to see going back to this robin hood aspect is you know are the ultimate aims of these non-national groups are they going to be accepted um, by those people who are serving those things Um, i think leadership then takes a different perspective in the military that chain of command is not to be questioned. And yet, I think we live in a generation now, the internet, where that very paradigm is constantly, or the idea of the paradigm is constantly objected to, it is questioned, um, and so you continue to get these factionalizations. Um,
1: Is is there also this element of women in combat, which we are talking about today in the context of, for example, the Ranger program? Uh, Space offers, and, and science fiction offers, a way to think about that in a future context. What can we learn from the stories that we saw and from the science fiction community's exploration of these strong female protagonists about women in combat today? Um,
2: First of all, I'd like to, I mean, just from my personal opinion, I don't know if we need to necessarily look to the science fiction community to see women in combat. We can just look at other nations, and indeed our own nation, Um, in certain incidents where women have been Fighting in combat with an M4, they weren't even just piloting an Apache or fighting in some removed sense. There were, there are, there have been combat situations with women in them, going back through history. So, in a certain sense, we—I don't even know if we need to always leverage the science fiction community. But even, if, even if we want to, um, I mean, certainly what we can learn from—I mean, it, it just provides an area for a thought experiment. Um, you know, I personally think that what, you know, the main argument right now, I think, is physical and mental is that it, they won't work well in a team and that there's physical uh, differences between the two. Well, that's an average. On average, women might be, have more physical difficulties than men. Well, there's, that's just the average. We can, we can select from the high end of the spectrum. I think that's what the Army tends to do already, or the Navy, or the Air Force. Well, that's
3: what, the, what just happened this last year, mm-hmm. the Marine Corps experiments. And they appear to be successful. But mm-hmm. again, it's, you don't expect the averages not to be different. It's just that you don't waste talent anymore.
1: Right. And it seems in space, you know, where there is a technological imperative to conflict that is different than the way we experience it today. You know, uh, your War Stories collection, James, had some incredible characters that dealt with a lot of this.
5: So I'm actually, one of the the things that started me out working on war stories is that I have quite a few friends and family in the military, and particularly in some of the more special operations uh, sides of things. And so this is a narrative that has been part of my life for a long time. I initially, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be part of the military until I learned that women were not allowed in combat. And for me, it's like, well, I'm not going to get involved in something that is so extremely limiting of my possibilities. But it means that it's something that I've been paying attention to for quite a while. And the number one hurdle that women in the military are facing is opinion. There's a great show called Agent Carter that's actually a Marvel TV show. And there's a scene in there where Carter is requesting permission to go on a mission. And the head of the agency looks at her and goes, if I send you over there and you get killed, I'm the idiot who sent a woman to die in war. If you go over there and you get one of our guys killed, I'm the idiot who sent a woman over there and got one of our guys killed. And that's, that's paraphrased, but that's a lot of what we're seeing now where you have the perception, and not even necessarily from a lot of the soldiers <coughs> themselves. I've, I've talked to several I, a fairly high level guys who are like, if look, if they can keep up with us, we don't care what their skin color is, we don't care what their gender is. If you can carry the same ruck as we can and you can keep up with us, and when it comes right down to it, we can rely on you. We don't care who you are or what you look like, we're fine with that. But the other thing is that women themselves are having to face an issue where we're raised with the perception that we're weaker, we are not supposed to be able to do these things, we are not. We're not given the same sports. You know, we, we do not take part in sports growing up. And so a lot of, of women lack sort of that mindset and that physical strength. I grew up on a ranch. I grew up training horses. I started training for money when I was 13. I developed that, that mindset that tends to be very different from what a lot of women are raised with, where I am able to be physically competent. And I think that we're going to need to start seeing that shift where you know, the, the I think it's the, is it Nike or Adidas that has those ads, run like a girl, hit like a girl, all of these. That is the kind of stuff that we need to start seeing if we're going to start seeing women in the military and, and taking their place on an equal footing with everyone else. The nice thing about science fiction is that we can jump 50 years in the future and pretend that that's already happened and start creating the expectation that this is going to be a thing, because when it comes right down to it.
3: And some of the science fiction of 30 years ago did exactly that and pretended it would happen. And we all saw Sigourney Weaver and some of these other kick ass archetypes, which are are now a major part of our zeitgeist and help to move things along. My my second degree black belt daughter, who's the limbo (laughs) champion of NYU, would say uh, (laughs) thank you for your efforts. though I I played a role in that. (laughs) Uh, I think that um, among the other things that we will, what we'll do is we'll offer you some suggestions about a fiction that portrays future conflict uh, and, of course, August will be putting a lot of our suggestions on a web page.
1: What what we're going to do is we're going to go to Q&A in the remaining time we have. And and before the Q&A eats up all of our time, we're going to go across the panel and kind of do a survey of what you guys should be reading, playing, or watching right now. Uh, So I'll open it up with questions. I'd like you to identify your name and your affiliation if you can. And we'll give Steve the first shot since he is the the patron of the project.
0: I thought you were gonna offer me the question because you thought I'd ask a really interesting question. It goes without saying. Um, I'd like to stick on this question about women warriors. Um, I am less interested in the ways in which women can be like men, which is sort of what we circulated around moments ago, and more interested in how women warriors would be different or would. Uh, with a more uh, prominent or at least uh, numerically uh, larger representation in war fighting. How would war be different when, when uh, you know, one of the phenomenon we can imagine, and, 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 and certainly science fiction has, has helped us do so, is, uh, you know, when warfare is fought by more like avatars, call them UAVs, call them avatars, what, you, what have you, then all these characteristics of physical strength, uh, et cetera, will be of uh, less of a, less of a, uh, a barrier uh, to women participating and to being warriors. So the, the question is, how would warfare fought by women be different? And does science fiction already, is extant, uh, tell us anything about that? Not how they're the same. How they would be, how it would make war different. Well, the metaphor
3: I've used is 2001. Um, how different the interface with HAL would have been if there had been a woman on that show, who didn't drive, who actually talked to HAL instead of driving him into a paranoid frenzy with their male power trips.
4: Um, anybody else well, on I that? A great documentary that came out, I think, <laughs> last year from PBS. It's called the Maker Series. And one of the episodes in there is Women in Space. Uh, and it revealed that one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is when the Apollo program initially started, uh, the initial candidates that were looked at were actually women. Because when they began to do all the calculations and all the math and stuff, uh, they actually figured out you know, just from body to whatever, their lesser payload size, greater fuel economy, it was actually a lot easier to manufacture the ships around. Um, So many benefits in the engineering side. The engineers were like, fantastic, let's get women. But unfortunately, they were facing again these opinions and these obstacles and we wanted to create the action hero mentality of space. And we're going to go out there and conquer. And so a lot of those efforts were diminished. Um, There have been social studies um, specifically focused on space. Because when you're in space, you know, in any one of these things. We're looking at Interstellar and we're looking at trapping a bunch of people together in a very tight box. I mean, just imagine a family trip um, from one end of the, you know, US to the other and I mean, instead we're gonna say, hey, let's go 100 years. And Um, you can't get out of the car. And you can't get out of the car. Um, But there's been social studies that when you actually begin to have more women in a group, that the overall success goes up because there's a higher rate of communication. Uh, what's being questioned? There's a more communication, there's things being talked about, there's less simple assumptions going into those mission things. So I think that's a major direction is that overall we have success because people are talking better. Women do a much better job of communicating. Men are very, you know, tight lipped sometimes, I think, in those moments.
5: But there's also, um, and again, I, I do not have any idea. Of, who had this study, but that women have a, a greater emotional resilience mm-hmm. in in many many ways, but also they tend to be a, a more analytic, to sit down and go, well, here are the potentials that are, that could happen, you know, if I do this, how is this going to work? And it's these are these micro calculations that we actually make every day. When I walk out into a parking garage at night, the calculations of what could be coming at me? How do I need to be presenting myself? How do I need to be mentally prepared for this issue? Because the chances are good that I will not be the strongest one here. I will need to leverage my resources. I will need to leverage my environment. I will need to leverage the other person. And so there's a definite calculation that we kind of developed from a very young age that I think translates really well to these sorts of questions. You know, I'm. I'm going up against you know, 10 people here. How do I leverage my resources and my environment to keep myself safe and to achieve the mission objective? And I think that there's, there have been some studies, studies that are showing that you're less likely to resort to flat out force and to achieve it more quietly, more directly, and more efficiently.
1: We'll to another question from the audience uh, right here.
0: My name is Wes Rist with the American Society of International Law. Uh, One of the questions Uh, that we toy around with a lot working with State Department advisors on space and and a lot of the international folks on this is sovereignty issues are going to change. It is somehow when we move off of a singular planet, sovereignty is going to be different. Um, Does that reflect an automatic increase in potential conflict, because there are now multiple actors playing. Does it, you know, this, this idea that there is some kind of unification where humanity starts to act a little bit more in cooperation because they realize the scale of the universe and, and its small place within it actually cause for a Roddenberry-esque, hooray, everyone doesn't have any money and there's no conflict in the 24th well, century kind I, of thing.
3: Uh, Alec, you, I, I, I have found that if you ask somebody, Will Pax Americana last 10,000 years? They say, of course not. That's ridiculous. Then you say 1,000 years. They say, no, of course not. Well, how about 100 years and or 50? And it starts getting very uncomfortable. Because Americans, though Pax Americana has a lot to say for it compared to all other previous Pax empires, And had Pax Americana not been here for the last 70 years, probably things would have been tremendously worse. We're probably the least hated Pax empire in all of human history. Uh, And our ratio of good deeds to bad is probably much higher than any other. Having said that, Americans do not like to talk about WCN, whatever comes next, and hence, we abrogate our ability to be the leaders in the discussion of whatever comes next, which is ironic, because we have been the leaders in creating whatever comes next. The anti-mercantilist trade patterns that George Marshall and and Acheson and Truman set up have basically basically uplifted the whole world instead of the mercantilist approach that all the other Pax empires had, that Gandhi complained about, that the British Raj basically ripped all the jobs out of India. Instead, we did the opposite in our trade patterns. And yet, Americans refuse to think about what happens if we are the last empire and something lawful takes our place. And the ironic result is that the elements of WCN are taking form in the world bureaucracy, the world courts world institutions. But the two most blatant aspects of world government are repressed, world legislature, world executive, because individual human beings would then say, I'm then a citizen of this thing. I want to say. I want standing. Whereas today, before the international bureaucracy and before the international courts, individuals have no standing. Corporations do, and nations do. So, you can see that it's actually very, very weird what's happening right now. And it's all, I think, because Americans who are the leaders of the world are in denial about having to face this discussion.
2: Alec? Uh, I think, in terms of your talk about a, kind of a Gene Roddenberry esque type situation, I think that in the short term that might actually be sustained not so much as the awe and majesty of the whole universe, but the fact that, oh, I just blew a hole in my rover and I have 20 minutes of air left and I need the Chinese to come over and save me. Um, but uh, so I, I think that might be kept in the short term just because space is no place to live now. Um, but for the long term, I think you, know, you mentioned whatever comes next. One uh, in, in the story, I, I tend to think of whatever comes next as more interest-based societies and post-locational societies. And I could be totally wrong, because honestly, that's kind of a weird idea. Um, But my thought is, as as information technology becomes more and more ubiquitous and we're able to communicate more and more effectively across great distances, there might actually come a point where we are in a post-locational society where your best friend might live on the other side of the world. But you can meet him. You can enter a chat room physically through virtual reality and shake his or her hand. But you live on other sides of the world. Um, so what we might have, and that, that's kind of what the sovereigns are, is instead of an ethnicity-based government or a, you know, an, or necessarily a, just a government-based government. Like the fact that I was born in the United States dictates I'm an American, although now I, I believe in it. I like it a lot. Um, but what if you grow? What if you are birthed into a world where, well, what do you like to do? That determines where your allegiances lie. You sit with that sovereignty because this is the culture that you grew up in. Are you a major league gamer? You ally with these people because that's who you've spent your life with. And Corey doctro has an interesting um, book about that, I believe, where it's by time zone. Is that we've become so interconnected that the only uh, the only separation in the power conglomerate over the world is when you have to sleep. So it's this war of time zone versus time zone in his novel. So I think just thinking outside of the box in terms of what comes next, like uh, perhaps instead of some large UN assembly type government, there might be this more organized chaos that comes out of that, which would only be helped by space, where the distances could lead to great balkanization.
3: Though you'll, though you'll notice the one essential element: if you're going to have a drama, a dramatic story that includes war, that assumes that something did not work. Mm-hmm. Therefore, your your WCN has failed to be what we need it to be to prevent war. Uh, the, the best example of this, the most outrageous example, is the three prequels of the Star Wars universe, in which the, feti- in which the, the uh, Republic does nothing. I don't mean does nothing well. I mean does nothing. <laughs> so the, the assumption here is, in Alex's situation, is that these new sovereignties develop, but that there remains no overarching unifying thing. We'll take another question from the audience. Uh, yeah.
6: Uh, Thank you, John Watts from the Atlantic Council. Uh, Thank you all for your thoughts. There's there's many, many threads I'd love to pull. Uh, But just one, we spoke a lot uh, about asteroid mining and the effects that has. We we briefly touched on on the energy aspect, but I wanted to kind of bring up space-based solar power generation. Uh, and my question is, does having national infrastructure that's you know, hugely capital-intense to, to build and that uh, the country is heavily reliant on, um, it, does that create a national um, vulnerability if we assume that, that you know the global commons means that anyone can attack it, or does it mean that those few nations that are able to sustain it, then, you know, come to a, a, a stasis where you don't attack mine, I won't attack yours? Or does it drive militarization where just as nations plan their naval um, orbats and, and um, defence plans around securing offshore drilling and other facilities, uh, trade routes, et cetera, w- which of those three does, does that um, drive? keeping in mind that Japan's already released a, you know, a road map to, um, to developing its capability.
3: I think you've just created uh, the scenarios for three great stories. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> three great Gedanken we'll talk. experiments.
5: <laughs> I mean, I think we're, the conflict is a human thing. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it. But I think that the shared interest is actually a, a really good point where, if nothing else, you have the... Well, if you attack me, I'm going to attack you. We're both going to be screwed. And and you, the same thing. You know, essentially, you could have it more of a cold war scenario where it's the the tension, or you could have it actually working together. In the we will protect each other. We'll be allies. We'll be buddies on this. And then your biggest risk is those nations that are not part of this that have been, you know, banned for some reason or excommunicated, as it were wanting that and not having anything to lose. And I think that one of the big things that we're going to need to be looking at in the future is what happens when you have someone who has no one to lose. That's where a lot of the extremist issues are coming from right now. That's, you know, one of the things that with the Syria project we're dealing with is we are uh, uh, the, the people that we are dealing with frequently have nothing left to lose and so they don't care what they spend in making that happen. They don't care if an entire nation goes down because, well, they don't have anything. So it's, that's one of the, the concerns with something like that is, yeah, we're vulnerable, but I mean, we're already hugely vulnerable. And
3: when you read Alex's story, you'll see that the initial cause of the war is a deniable um, strike. Somebody has hijacked, uh, hacked a, uh, something that humanity was proud of and used it in a, in a way to destroy uh, an enemy in a deniable fashion or a cryptic fashion. Uh, I highly recommend a book by the late Fred Pohl called The Cool War, mm-hmm. in which what he thought, it seemed very plausible at the time, and we could at any point fall into this, where nations and or interests do tit for tat sabotage, deniable sabotage, so it never becomes a hot war. and just. D- the degrading of each other's civilizations enters a downward spiral of tit for tat um, sabotage.
5: Mom, he pulled my hair. No, I didn't. <laughs> well, that's, right.
3: that's,
1: a that's a great segue. That's a great yeah. segue to our yeah. kind of closing uh, of the panel because we're nearing our time. But Alec, maybe you can tell us what people in the audience, both online and here, should be reading, watching, and playing to think more about the future of warfare. <laughs> yeah. Existence, I, by the way, uh, just to plug you, this book, is is really worth reading, uh, for for so many reasons. But the world that is built is so understandable from our point of view today, yet so imaginative. Uh, I think that's a pretty good endorsement, and I don't without being a spoiler. So, anyway, Alec.
2: Mm-hmm. Like um, definitely. Well, one of the, the short story that was very influential on me when writing this was a, a short story called "To High" from Far Selenia. By uh, Carl Schroeder, I believe is his name. Carl Schroeder is um, very good. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. But it kind of introduced that concept of internet nations to me. Uh, in addition, the Quiet the Quiet War by Paul McAuley is a great. Uh, I believe it's the first in a series because it kind of had a cliffhanger. But is an mm-hmm. it is a novel of war within the solar system, between uh, these very influential, col- influential colonies in the Oort cloud and on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and Earth. Um, and then finally, even though I don't think we got into it, it quite as much as I expected coming in, but if you ever want to learn about network combat, combat taken to its farthest logical conclusion, Ghost in the Shell mm-hmm. is a fantastic movie. I mean, I'm sure many of you have already seen it, but just for anybody who hasn't been introduced to it, um, even, even the shows spinning off on, on it, like Standalone Complex, every time I see an ISIS lone wolf attack. I imagine the attackers in standalone com- uh, complex. All right.
5: So I'm actually, there's a novel that's coming out soon that is not technically science fiction, but it's, it's fantasy, and it's by author Ken Liu. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, The Dandelion Empire, I believe, is the name of, of the trilogy that will be coming out, but he looks at, i um, the necessities of leadership, of, of dignified and responsible leadership, and it's a very political fantasy. Uh, we joke with him that it's it's tax punk. You know, it's, it's the systems and bureaucracies that create an empire, but told in a fantastic, huge, empirical setting. And it's, it's a very sobering read, very thoughtful read, and it, it pulls out a lot of stuff that we're going to be dealing with, You know, with authority figures. Um, yes, Grace of Kings. Yes, yeah. The I I have a problem where I get books way ahead of time and then I completely <laughs> forget when they're actually coming out because uh, it's like, well, I've had this for three months. I don't know what you people are waiting for. Um, there's also a role-playing game called Eclipse Phase that is actually really fantastic because it looks at a society far in the future where those boundaries are completely gone. You have the the mega corporations. You have Transhumans—you have all of these things that are kind of things we're dealing with now, but are taken to an extreme. And and when you do that, sometimes you come back to an understanding of some of the basic issues of it. Um, so those are two things. If, I mean, they're they're endless lists, and I will remember all of them as soon as I walk out of the room. Okay, but so they'll I'll,
3: be posted on
4: August. Yes, so, yeah, we'll so come I'll up with a great August list.
5: Recommendations, so I'll probably also be tweeting them for a while
4: as I think of them. So. One uh, good series is The Unincorporated Man yes. um, and Incorporated Woman and Incorporated Future. Uh, yeah. It is economic science fiction. Looking at the way that capitalism will continue to evolve and change, um, how currency uh, will move from national standards uh, to other variations, a uh, brilliant series. And I think he's doing revolutionary work in that. Uh, going to the idea of what's gaming um it's very tough to play this game but it's definitely worth looking at is called eve online eve online is very interstellar science fiction taken away into the future borders on fantasy but what's interesting about it is this is a very multi-massive player uh
5: it has game. its own economy it has
4: its own economy it plays basically in one world so and there are smaller groups of people that actually own space, they allow them in the game, you own territory, you own entire solar systems. And the videos, and now there's actually even becoming great papers being written on the communication. But the people that are involved in this game are from all over the planet. There are people that are involved in some of these you know, non-national groups that own actual physical territory that actually has a financial price tag on it. Planets have actual money that can be cashed out and there's you know, been all this, you know, backbiting and fighting. It's a very interesting one. Um,
5: there are a lot of academic papers on it. Brilliant. Two. So.
4: Yeah, it really. <laughs> it's basically science fiction gaming with spreadsheets, um, but it's brilliant. Uh, the other one that it suggests is James S. A. Corey's The Expanse series. Uh, Expanse is coming to the Sci-Fi channels. The uh, first uh, series. Um, the nice and thing. And they just
5: ab- got the second greenlit.
4: Oh, fantastic. Yes. Um, The nice thing about it is it deals with solar system uh, space opera. So it is space opera, it's gonna have a lot of hyperbole in it. But it deals with a lot of these different organizations. Mars is its own separate entity. Um, And then the nice thing that they really do is they extrapolate a sort of unified Earth, but not a completely unified Earth. Uh, China has a great involvement in the way that uh, the unified Earth works and is, you know, differing with other national things, and it really ties into the privateering aspect and the mining, and then rogue nations in that. Great.
3: So. The um, just some last names. Um, I, uh, even though it's dealing with an alien invasion, uh, Footfall is a classic yes. that uh, shows really, really near-term technological what's in our reach that deals with an alien invasion in near-space combat. That's Niven and Purnell. You mentioned Ken Liu, uh, Mm. probably the greatest science fiction ever to come out of Asia. So far is The Three-Body Problem by Liu Cixin, uh, and it was translated by Ken Liu. And it's just been published. Uh, volume one has just been published with a nice blurb by me, um, uh, by Tor Books. The Forever War. Yes. A lot of these titles, The Something War, The Uplift War. No, no, don't, no, no, don't. No, no. <laughs> but uh, in any event, um, I want to also give a plug to. Um, Various ways of doing thought experiments that are outside of fiction, uh, I just helped establish the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UCSD. And the Clarke Center just co-sponsored with the Smithsonian, the Future Is Here event, that just concluded a few hours ago and is happening every May here in DC. So look out for, the, look out for this next May. The Future Is Here, co-sponsored by the Arthur Clarke Center. Well, thank
1: you all for for watching and tuning in. We're going to be following up the panel with a reception just outside those doors, so the conversation can continue in person. It can continue online through Twitter, through the website at ArtOfFutureWarfare.org. Thank you once again for tuning in. And let's uh, celebrate our guests' attendance today and their great participation.